Broadcasting from the Cradle of Liberty in Philadelphia. All the way to the rhythm and blues of Beale Street in Memphis. To high atop the Wasatch Mountains in Utah. This is where politically correct perception meets common sense. This is the Joe Carey Show. Hello there and welcome to the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe. Glad you could join us on this Friday. Hope your plans, whatever they may be, include uh, being close to a telephone in case you need to to phone in. And by the way, the number you'll want to call is 801-331-8113. Again, 801-331-8113. Just saw this tweet come across my phone. Thank you, phone, for keeping me up to speed. I don't know where I'd be without you. All right. It wants to see my face to make sure that it's really me talking to it. Here we go. Uh, This is from the Washington Post. House votes to restrain Trump on war with Iran, setting up showdown with Senate. Now, I don't know if this is, is this good news or is this bad news? On the one hand, I've kind of had the impression that uh, Trump, for, you know, for all the tough talk and, and for all the posturing with Iran, wasn't exactly in a hurry to, to get into a head-on conflict with them. And frankly, it's been a little bit discouraging over the last mm, roughly, what, 19 years? Maybe not quite 19, 18 years since, you know, the uh, authorization of military force that uh, pretty much the president has been able to get the U.S. involved militarily at will. Congress has abdicated its responsibility to deliberate and then declare war. And uh, actually, that's been going on for a lot longer than just the last 18 years. It's actually been going on since about, what, uh, December 8th? 1945 or 1941, um, Congress declared war in World War II. And I just want to bring to your attention, that's the last war that America decisively fought to a conclusion. And I mean a, without a doubt, conclusion. We fought it to an unconditional surrender. Um, Our enemies did not have, you know, any choice but to agree to the terms that uh, the U.S. and its allies imposed on them. But everything since then, the police action in Korea, the the Southeast Asia wars, oftenly referred to as Vietnam, the first Gulf War, the second Gulf War, which, by the way, never really stopped. We still have permanent bases. Um, You know, all of the different garrisons that we have put up around the globe, the ongoing drone attacks, it never stops. And you may be saying, well, Brian, of course it doesn't. You know, the world's a dangerous place. And I would agree it can be. But sometimes I think that uh, the contributions of what our government is doing through its foreign policy, which I could probably use the word intervention via foreign policy, I think it's that's what keeps the ball rolling. That's what keeps things dangerous. So I'm kind of happy to see that the, the House actually voted to prevent President Trump from launching into war with Iran without getting Congress to approve first. And just so you know, more than two dozen Republicans joined Democrats to include the provision in the House's annual defense authorization bill. Now, this is likely going to set up a showdown with the Senate over the over whether the Iran restriction, which includes an exception for cases of self-defense. You know, when we're defending ourselves over there in their territorial waters or airspace. (laughs) Sorry, it just just seems ironic, you know. We're defending ourselves. They, they built their country way too close to all of our military bases. 
And it's, it remains to be seen whether that is going to be included in the final bill negotiated between the two chambers. But Republican leaders in the House and Senate have argued that mess, this language could send a bad message to Tehran that the United States is divided, complicating the president's ability to manage escalating tensions. Do you notice the presumption here is that uh, the tensions are escalating without any provocation or any uh, any input on the part of the United States? Am I am I reading more into this than I should? Because it really seems like that's that's the tack that they're taking here in how this is reported is, well, you know, of course, we're just innocently minding our own business. And uh, yet the, the tensions are escalating. Yeah, just like they they somehow mysteriously escalated when Britain seized an Iranian oil tanker that ostensibly was taking oil to Syria. Somehow it just happened. I, you know, go figure. It reminds me of that that curious passive voice that uh, that you'll sometimes see um, a police officer shoot somebody, the wrong person. But the news story won't be reported or the police press release won't say, you know, the officer accidentally shot the the wrong person. It will be during the scuffle. The officer's weapon mysteriously discharged. Oh, all by itself. There was no intent or there was no conscious effort on anybody's part to pull it out and pull the trigger. All right. I just see the same kind of standard being applied here in the, in the way that uh, the Washington Post is, is going on about this. Now, the Iran Amendment is one of several high-profile measures lawmakers voted this week um, to include in the bill, the, the first defense authorization bill that the Democrats have steered through the House since taking over the majority earlier this year. And some of the measures include uh, ending U.S. participation in Saudi Arabia's military campaign in Yemen to undoing President Trump's ban on transgender troops. And yeah, so it's all it's politicized. And I guess that's why I'm a little bit conflicted, conflicted here, because I feel like maybe it's not such a bad thing. It's not such a bad thing. They're saying, by the way, if you do want to go to war to war with Iran, you need to get Congress's approval first. But again, I'm going to temper this with the understanding. I, I really I haven't perceived that Trump is the guy who's really beating the drum. John Bolton. Absolutely. Mike Pompeo. Yeah, he wants war really, really bad, too. Trump has actually been kind of a refreshingly, do I dare say, reasonable voice amidst the the guys who are, you know, howling like monkeys for for war with a country that uh, I don't think they've made the case that this this really affects us. This is something that, that must be done to protect America. Well, it'll be interesting to see. You know, on the one hand, you know, I can see where for for Democrats, it's like, well, haha, we're going to hamstring the president on this. On the other hand, I don't care whether it's Trump or or any other president. The president should be hamstrung in the sense that it's not the president's prerogative to send the nation to war. That's Congress's power. And if you think I'm being partisan about this, look, let me just make clear. I want to step back a couple steps here and say, Why did the founders give the power to declare war strictly to Congress? Why is that what it says in the Constitution? I think there was wisdom there. 
And I think part of the wisdom was they, they put that, that power to declare war in the hands of a deliberative body, as opposed to the hands of one individual who may wake up having a bad day or may just, you know, have a grudge or something like that. Put it in the hands of a body that can actually debate it, weigh the, the good and the bad, the costs, the benefits, and then move forward. Does that sound cumbersome? Does that sound like, well, you know, what, what are we supposed to do? I mean, come on, we may need to move with quickness. It's possible. But oftentimes you can see trouble coming. It's not like, wow, just out of the blue, suddenly people attacked us. What about 9-11? Yeah, what about that? Actually, let's, let's talk a little bit about that. Weren't there any warning signs? Didn't somebody, wasn't there some way we could have known that that could have happened? Okay, now it depends on who you talk to. And I'm not saying let's go chase a conspiracy theory down the rabbit hole here. But since September 11th, 2001, the U.S. media and many people within the U.S. government have demonized Muslims and fetishized the military so much that most Americans have absolutely no idea and no understanding what a devastating impact our foreign policies had on the Muslim world. And I think that's a, that's an oversight that uh, if you want to be truly honest with yourself, we probably should should take a closer look at. There's a great article by Dave DeCamp published. Uh, I guess this was published a couple of days ago on uh, antiwar.com. One of the things that he points out here is that Osama bin Laden has been painted as a maniac, a guy so insane, so blind with rage that he toppled the Twin Towers because Allah told him to hate Western culture. But the fact is, bin Laden made his motivation for attacking us extremely clear. He said U.S. intervention in the Middle East was the reason for the attack. Now, that doesn't make the September 11th attack right. You understand that, correct? This doesn't mean, therefore, all those innocent people deserve to die. They didn't. But it means it was something other than, well, you know, they must have hated us for our freedom. And that's why they flew those jetliners into those buildings on that day. Now, there was a little something more behind it. But the, but we have to be willing to take off the patriotic blinders and recognize that sometimes what the U.S. government is doing in our names isn't necessarily a good thing or a right thing. And we should be thinking about how could we correct that? This is the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe. We'll be back after these messages. You are listening to the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe today. All right. Can, can we handle some tough truth? By the way, if, and, and if you need to rebut some of this tough truth, because <laughs> there may be that need, 801-331-8113 is the number to call. Let's talk about what fuels terrorism. This is a great article from Dave DeCamp published on Antiwar earlier this week. And I want to I take you back to uh, the 1996 fatwa issued by Osama bin Laden. It was titled Declaration of Jihad Against the Americans Occupying the Land of the Two Holiest Sites. In other words, expel the infidels from the Arab Peninsula. Now, the title made bin Laden's goal clear. 
after the Soviet Union was driven out of Afghanistan and then collapsed at the end of the Cold War, bin Laden turned his eyes to the United States. U.S. support for Israel angered the rich Saudi, but it was the U.S. troops occupying the Arabian Peninsula that really stoked his rage. And when George H.W. Bush's cabinet found a new enemy in Iraqi strongman Saddam Hussein, giving up on the peace dividend that would have slashed the defense budget and put that money to use presumably elsewhere. After Operation Desert Storm, when Saddam was driven out of Kuwait, the U.S. maintained its presence on the Arabian Peninsula. The administration broke its promise to Saudi leadership that they'd go home once Saddam's forces retreated back to Iraq. Then, the U.S., along with the U.N., maintained a brutal sanction and bombing campaign after the war. In fact, a U.N.-sponsored report in 1995 claimed U.S. sanctions were responsible for the deaths of over half a million Iraqi children. In 1996, in an interview with uh, Nidal Islam magazine, when listing examples of the U.S. killing innocent Muslims, bin Laden said the death of more than 600,000 Iraqi children because of the shortage of food and medicine, which resulted from from the boycotts and sanctions against the Muslim Iraqi people. Now, look, you may be shrugging your shoulders and go, so what? And I don't know what would what would be behind that official indifference. You know, is it well because they're Muslims or because they speak another language or their skin's a different tone than mine or Saddam was a so and so, you know, and does that justify, though? I mean, look, we lost not quite 3000 Americans on September 11th, 2001. And the rage that people feel today is still quite justified. How do you think we'd feel if we lost 500,000 innocent lives, little kids? Would we just shrug it off? I guess my, my point here is if you can shrug this off as well, you know, let's see, you got to break some eggs if you're going to make an omelet. Man, you may want to re-examine, you know, your, your moral high ground that you think you're standing on. That would be a very difficult thing for people to get past. And, and, and I'm not trying to be mean when I point this out. I'm just asking you to consider the invasion of Iraq the first time and the second time were invasions of choice. The United States government chose to invade and militarily overturn the leadership of a country that had never materially harmed the United States. I know he was being recalcitrant. He wasn't doing what we wanted to. He, he, he was saying all the wrong things. But capability is what counts. And he was n- never in a position to attack us. Nor did Saddam Hussein have anything to do with September 11th. See, in some parts of the world, particularly those where very tribal mentality holds sway. And yes, Saudi Arabia and other parts of the Muslim world would, would count as this. There's also a very strong sense of honor. Now, contrary to what you may have been told, you know, the idea that, well, you know, that's because they'll just kill you for looking at them wrong. Actually, the sense of honor is strong enough in in most Muslim cultures that even if you uh, even if you are on the wrong side of the equation, you're someone who is perceived as an enemy. But you go to an individual and ask, may I please have your protection? Honor dictates that he must extend that protection to you while you are a guest. 
But the point here is uh, U.S. foreign policy has not necessarily been honorable. The article points out since September 11th, there have been more terrorist incidents within the U.S. where the perpetrators motives were related to U.S. intervention in the Middle East. In 2009, Nidal Hassan, a U.S. Army psychiatrist, shot and killed 13 people at Fort Hood in Texas. Colonel Terry Lee, a colleague of Hassan, said he was angry about U.S. involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan, and he was hoping that President Obama would pull troops out, that things would settle down. And when things were not going that way, he just became more agitated and more frustrated with the conflicts over there. And he just he made his views well known about how he felt about the U.S. involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, Hassan was about to be deployed, but it wasn't clear at the time if it would be to Iraq or Afghanistan. Think back to the Boston Marathon bombing. The surviving Boston Marathon bomber, uh, I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly, Zulkar Sarnayev, wrote a note on the inside of the boat that the police found him in. He said the bombings were in retribution for the U.S. crimes in places like Iraq and Afghanistan and that the victims of the Boston bombing were just collateral damage in the same way innocent victims have been collateral damage in U.S. wars around the world. Summing up that when you attack one Muslim, you attack all Muslims. So he kind of spelled out his motive there. June 12th, 2016, Omar Mateen opened fire at a gay nightclub in Orlando, killing 49 innocent patrons. In the wake of the massacre, it was reported as a hate crime, but since then, more evidence has been released showing that his motive was U.S. bombing campaigns in the Middle East. The shooter didn't even know the club was a gay club, reportedly asking the security guard where all the women were before opening fire. Mateen posted to Facebook during the shooting, You kill innocent women and children by doing airstrikes? Now taste the Islamic State vengeance. Release transcripts of a conversation between Mateen and a 911 operator make his motivations clear. A lot of innocent women and children are getting killed in Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay, you see, now you feel. Now you feel how it is. Now you feel how it is. In 2007, during the Republican presidential debates, candidate Ron Paul said, They attack us because we've been over there. We've been bombing Iraq for 10 years. We've been in the Middle East. He says, I think Reagan was right. We don't understand the irrationality of Middle Eastern politics. And as you recall, Rudy Giuliani, who was also running for the presidential nomination, responded to Paul. Why, that's an extraordinary statement of someone who lived through the attack of September 11th, that we invited the attack because we were attacking Iraq. That's not what he said, by the way. I don't think I've ever heard that before, and I've heard some pretty absurd explanations for September 11th. And then Giuliani asked the congressman to withdraw the comment and tell us that he didn't really mean that. Now, Giuliani's response is the perfect example of the kind of willful ignorance that's helped continue our disastrous foreign policy. The fact that Giuliani was the mayor of New York at the time of the attacks makes it all the more pathetic that he never thought to question his own government's responsibility for the death of thousands of his constituents. There is a term for it. You probably heard it. It's called blowback. Dave DeCamp says now that it's 2019, almost 18 years after 9-11, our government can no longer guilt us into ignoring the plain facts in front of us. What drives these terrorists to kill is not Islam. Their religion is just a common identity. The real motivation and drive to commit violence stems from U.S. intervention. And ignoring these facts is not patriotism. He says it's cowardice. That's some hard stuff to consider. 
I don't know about you. I don't want my country to be wrong. I don't want to have to doubt what our leadership is doing. But something tells me if we don't start questioning this kind of thing, we're going to find ourselves neck deep in another conflict that will be a conflict of choice, only this time involving Iran. And I can't explain exactly why, but the stakes just feel higher this time. So let's think this one through. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe Carey. We'll be back on the Joe Carey show right after this. Credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe today. I'm just feeling my neck here to see if there's any chopping marks or anything, because I feel like I stuck my neck out here in sharing the uh, article from uh, from Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com about how it's about time we recognize what fuels terrorism. And I, I sincerely hope it's it's not just, you know, made you upset and angry and, you know, want to, you know, go kick the dog or something. I think we have to be willing to take a look at some of these hard truths and, and recognize that uh, we does not do a good job of describing who is responsible for the kinds of decisions that lead to unnecessary conflict, unnecessary bloodshed. We, meaning you and I, are really out of the loop of people who make those decisions. And I'm not telling you that so that we can feel, unpa- you know, dis- disenfranchised or, um, you know, otherwise dispossessed of any kind of power. But I also want to make it clear that, uh, you know, when we talk about, well, we need to put Iran in its place. What's this we stuff, pale face? I mean, come on. It's a handful of people who claim to represent us, some elected, most of them not, different bureaucrats and the like, at, uh, at the top of the political food chain who make these kind of decisions. And when uh, good individuals... The men and women who wear our nation's uniform and in good faith go forth to serve and, and in their mind to protect the United States of America. When they are betrayed by these kind of policymakers, when they're sent on a fool's errand and their trust is betrayed. I think that uh, that calls for some that calls for some displeasure, some anger, not at them necessarily, but the people who would send them. The people who always seem to be sitting somewhere safe, sipping lemonade on a porch, while better men and women than themselves are dying for the sake of their decisions. All right, that's about as emotional as I'm going to get here. 801-331-8113. If you'd like to call in and and either violently agree or violently disagree, or even calmly (laughs) do either one of them, feel free. By the way, there was a great commentary this was published on The Hill, and uh, <laughs> I, lo- I love this because this is one of the reasons why I don't watch news. Joe Ferrillo uh, wrote an article about, uh, could I have some news with my emotions, please? 
And I don't know if you'll remember this, but he starts by bringing to mind the image of Walter Cronkite and how he unnerved a nation 56 years ago by taking off his glasses. Some of you will recall this. The video has been seen by countless millions over the decades. Cronkite announcing on live television in 1963 the death of President Kennedy. He stops for a moment, removes his glasses, composes himself, and moves on. Now, that gesture rattled Americans because they expected journalists to convey this calm sense of authority, this reassuring stoicism in the face of Cold War standoffs and civil unrest, even in the assassination of a president. But things have changed. Emotion now blankets the media landscape like an infant's crib at bedtime. Google Shepard Smith emotional. And up come nearly three million results, many of them focused on the Fox anchor's recent visceral response to immigrant suffering. A search of Rachel Maddow crying delivers more than a million offerings, many for the MSNBC's reaction to border detentions and the Mueller report. Brooke Baldwin Tears uncovers nearly two million entries for the CNN reporter's reaction to a variety of news events. Now, these are not alone. By the way, I wonder what we would get if we if we were to Google Glenn Beck crying. Yeah, there's it's not just limited to one side of the political spectrum. Contemporary culture trusts feelings over facts, rewards, heated emotion, tears, or anger, and rejects medium cool. And the effect on journalism is unmistakable. A lot of the blame can be placed on those all-too-common twin devils, television and the Internet. Now, Joe Ferrello is, is hitting a nerve here. From the earliest days of television, he says, journalists understood the power of an image to overwhelm objectivity. That's why Cronkite and others worked hard to present the news without emotional cues. No raised eyebrows, head shaking or wide eyed incredulity. They presented the news simply expecting this would counteract that gut level response all humans have to striking images. But it didn't work for long. As television began to overtake newspapers, images trumped words, viewing overpowered reading. In the 1980s, TV news actually became profitable, which increased pressure on electronic journalism to highlight emotional images that delivered viewers. Then in this century, the Internet blew everything up. Now photos and videos are available all the time in any quantity. News organizations feel pressured to do whatever they can to grab viewers' attention in the midst of this staggering clutter of emotional imagery. But get this. Emotions can be like an addiction. The only way to hold a viewer's attention is to continually ratchet up the emotional stakes. And it's not enough to connect passionately to a picture or a video clip. The audience also expects a fierce attachment to news anchors and reporters. They want to see journalists emote which is embraced as a more reliable truth than the facts and figures being reported. Media analysts refer to this as the post-literate society, where words matter less and images are our main language, the most effective way for humans to communicate. But in a way, we've been here before. Call it pre-literate America at the beginnings of mass communication more than a century ago. Back then, vast sections of the populace from rural areas to immigrant-swelled cities had, at best, a basic grasp of reading. In that culture, yellow journalism thrived. Newspapers relied on simple sentences, bold headlines, lots of big photos. The Hearst and Pulitzer chains competed for emotion-driven stories like crime sprees and sex scandals. 
Their papers were often aligned with a political party. Pulitzer, the Democrats, Hearst, the Republicans. And each accused the other of exaggeration and sensationalism. In other words, yeah, they were pointing the finger at that's fake news. <laughs> now, their battle for dominance is even blamed for whipping up public passion and sparking the Spanish-American War. Now, tabloid journalism never totally went away, of course, but its power diminished thanks to increased literacy, especially after World War II, as the nation poured money into education. Words mattered. Literacy can also mitigate today's journalism trends. Media literacy is now being taught in many schools, which train students to view images critically, to be aware of the fervor they conjure up, and to put those in perspective. Studies show younger viewers are, in fact, better able to cut through the clutter Separating, separating facts from emotion and reporting from opinion. Well, that's actually good news. But the genies of emotion and image can't be pushed back into their bottles, nor should they. Impersonal and objective always threaten to seem cold-blooded, especially in the face of tragic news. But a new literacy, a new vigilance is required, says Joe Ferrillo. William Randolph Hearst at the height of his tabloid power is quoted as saying, don't be afraid to make a mistake. Your readers might like it. But Ferrello says journalism is better off when readers and now viewers can look critically at what's in front of them, whether words or images, and value the facts above all else. I really like his take on this. The question is, how do you get there? Because it's, it's not a secret the headlines, the images, the video that's shown, more often than not, are calculated. I mean, someone chooses those words very, very carefully. They're looking for, what's, what's the phrase? They want nuclear headlines that grab your attention. You couldn't look away if there was a nuclear blast going off in the distance, even though you should. You don't want to burn your eyes, but you get the picture. They want to get your attention. So they use loaded words. Emotion-bearing words. And by the way, the two prime emotions that will get people to click on a story are the emotions of fear and anger. Now, if you think about this in terms of, okay, who's trying to yank my chain? Who is trying to manipulate me? It becomes a whole lot easier to spot when someone is trying to drive you into one of those two emotions. But it's a habit you've got to develop, and it doesn't come just naturally. I think back to the picture of little Bailey Almond being carried out of the wreckage of the Oklahoma City Federal Building back in 1995. Now, as, as luck would have it, I had a daughter who was roughly the same age as Bailey. And the image of this fireman carrying this bloodied little child's body out of the rubble was intense. It was extremely moving. And yet the more I saw it, the more I started asking myself, whoa, man, they are showing this everywhere. Why this image? And the answer became clear in a very short time because that's the one that really drove the emotion. And then pretty soon the other shoe dropped and it was like, by the way, this is the fault of every person to the right of Bill Clinton. Yeah, they lumped everybody together. Skinheads, militias, patriots. Republicans all into one big ball of wax, and we were told they all want to overthrow the government, and that's why this happened. Now, that was false, of course, but hey, good luck getting a hold on those emotions once you've seen that picture.
Hey, welcome back to the Joe Carey Show. I'm Brian Hyde, sitting in for Joe. Don't forget, coming up uh, in just a few minutes, 1 o'clock Mountain Time, it is Stranger Than Fiction. Truth is Stranger Than Fiction with uh, Ralph DeLucas. Fast becoming one of my favorite shows. Look, I for a long time... I had uh, weird hours, meaning I would have to get up at oh dark thirty in the morning and sometimes make a half hour drive into the radio station to go do a morning show and and so I would always catch a portion of the art bell program coast to coast a m and it was fantastic and I always thought, man, it was just genius radio by the way, about every trucker that I talked to uh, would would say the same thing. Something interesting to keep your mind occupied as you're driving across the U.S. was, you know, find out what Art Bell was talking about. Now, I'm not going to tell you that Ralph DeLugas is like Art Bell, but he's like what Art Bell could have been with a little bit of work. (laughs) Sorry. No disrespect to the memory of Art Bell, but uh, Ralph is a thinker. He's humble, but he loves to go after subjects and ask the questions that others might not think to ask. And it makes for a really entertaining and informative program. And I'm going to ask you, please, please, please don't take my word for it. Tune in for yourself. Truth is Stranger Than Fiction with Ralph DeLugas coming up immediately after the Joe Carey show this afternoon on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. How do you rule people? Not that you're, you know, looking for, uh, you know, some one-shot answer for how on earth do I get people to do exactly as I want them to do. But there's a good question there. And sometimes I feel like we we have a lot of people who subscribe to this one-size-fits-all approach. Well, of course, what we need to do is have an election, and whoever wins in the election has got the mandate to tell everybody what to do. Does that not describe pretty much how our election process works? Even if your person doesn't win... You're still expected. Fall into line. You do what everybody says, at least those on the winning side. Essentially, what it comes down to is it's like force. The spears will be pointing in that direction at those people or in this direction at you and me. I like how Paul Rosenberg puts it. That's, you know, we we may think, well, that's just, you know, the way it is in this in this old life. But the truth of the matter is that is Bronze Age technology. Which is why using, you know, the the term spears is probably accurate. Which way are the spears going to point? We've improved on so many things in our lives. There's so many things we do different than people did 5,000 years ago. Politics, though, still pretty much comes down to the same thing. We've got to get this popularity contest over with so that we can decide which way the spears are going to point. An excellent article from the American Institute for Economic Research. This is written by Art Carden. There is no one answer to rule them all. I thought it makes a really excellent point about resorting to force, which unfortunately for most people is kind of a conditioned response. Well, we have to do this. We have to force people to do this. Art Carden says people have all kinds of dumb preferences and they like all kinds of different things. We also do all sorts of dumb stuff. Sometimes we want to share our passion with others, and sometimes we want to keep people from following in our unwise footsteps. So he says, by all means, we should work to persuade, but we don't do anyone any favors when we resort to force. Now, check out this explanation. He says, sometimes this stems from a simple mistake where we make a leap from our preferences to others' obligations. I wouldn't do that job is fine. I wouldn't do that job, therefore no one should be allowed to is not. See the difference? I really think this subject is important. 
that's fine. I really think this subject is important, therefore everyone should be required to study it. Uh, transgender activist, I'm looking your direction here. That's not fine. Or more generally, I like doing this thing. That's totally okay. I like doing this thing, therefore everyone should be required to. Generally isn't. You see the point that he's making. We aren't respecting others' liberty or their dignity or autonomy as independent and independently valuable moral agents when we coerce them. And we're also silencing the economic conversation about what should be produced, when, where, how, and for whom, and the cultural conversation about what it means to live well by simply saying some things are out of bounds when there isn't a compelling case that those things affect other people enough that maybe, maybe compulsion might be warranted. A lot of the things people want to ban or require don't even get close to a decent case for compulsion. By the way, if you want to read somebody who makes a really solid case for when compulsion by the state is okay and when it isn't, which is most of the time, get your hands on any of the writings of Oberon Herbert. I understand it's a name you haven't heard, but he does the best job I think I have ever seen of delineating between when you may actually have moral authority and when you do not. And it may be slightly disappointing to some to realize that uh, for the most part, we often don't have moral authority when we're trying to force people. You have to do this. Why? Oh, because it's for the good of society. But it takes it's a fairly high bar to hit before that kind of coercion would be justified. In this case, Art Carden says, uh, consider low wage jobs in dangerous conditions, for example. It's not something I choose or I'm even tempted to choose because I, I have much better options. But who am I to tell someone that he or she can't take a job I would find unpleasant or accept a wage that I wouldn't like, especially if it's the best of a lot of bad options? If we really respect people's liberty and their dignity and autonomy and really care about their prosperity, then we will work to expand their options rather than limit them. Or consider studying economics. Art Carden says, I've dedicated my life to it, and in my weaker moments, I think no one should be allowed out of college without at least two courses in economics and two courses in statistics. He says, I want to indulge that little voice inside me saying there ought to be a law. But I have to recognize that not everyone agrees with me, and some people, for reasons I don't understand, think there are some things more important or interesting than economics and statistics. And I'd be assuming against the evidence that compelling someone to study something is the same thing as they're actually learning it. Now, he points out the water's muddy quite a bit when we talk about college curricula, as colleges and universities are free to set their own requirements. But he says each institution, in my opinion, should be free to decide what counts as a degree from that institution. And what about the children? He says, kids, too, are obviously a little bit different, but we try, not always successfully, to help our kids learn to make good choices by giving them the freedom to make a lot of low-stakes bad choices. He says, my wife and I think we do a decent enough job, and even when we do step in and establish or enforce rules about things like access to iPads or candy, there's a pretty clear difference between the appropriate relationship between two parents and their seven-year-old and the appropriate relationship between adult strangers. 
In fact, he says, here's a practical example one of my friends shared on social media. Pets on porches at Alabama restaurants. According to Alabama's health code, live animals may not be allowed on the premises of a food establishment. Now, this also means porches, which apparently means Alabama restaurants that want to welcome pets are out of luck. And this example illustrates why economic liberty is so important. Look, some restaurants want to cater to pet owners. Others are wary of possible complaints from other patrons who don't want to eat in a restaurant with dogs or cats and any of the health problems they might create. A lot of other people probably don't care and just want to go where the food is good. What's great for one customer may be an unbearable imposition upon another. There is, therefore, no one answer to rule them all. There's the takeaway right there. People are different. We all have different preferences. We all have different things that serve our self-interest. The one-size-fits-all approach always tends to lead to more conflict. Now, look, there's an exception to this in the sense that uh, when someone does something that causes measurable harm to another person, okay, now you have justification to intervene. But in the meantime, people should be free to hold whatever thoughts they want to hold, to believe whatever they want to believe, to say what they want to say without coercion. Art Carden says, we have a lot of different cuisines to choose from because people have different preferences. Similarly, there are many different kinds of retail outlets from Walmart to boutique cheese shops because people have different preferences about combinations of price and selection. Knowledgeable staff, in-store amenities. So who's right? Everyone and no one. And the right pattern of restaurants and retailers emerges from a dizzying array of bids, offers, and ventures. He says, I don't know what the equilibrium looks like or should look like. Maybe dispensing with pet prohibitions will lead to a profusion of pooches on patios and porches, or maybe not. And if you don't like one restaurant's policies, odds are there will be another one with a policy that's much more your speed. It's good to have choices. I'm Brian Hyde sitting in for Joe Carey on The Joe Carey Show. Stand by for Truth is Stranger Than Fiction with Ralph DeLugas coming up next on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 